Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we're here each week looking at the Court of Appeals decisions for the state of Nebraska and the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions and uh, trying to figure out what what's good. What's up? What's going on? <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> what's important? Uh, what, what we need to focus on? You know, uh, maybe, maybe you know, if you're listening to this at some point, might be mowing your lawn. Not this time of year. Why did I even? Shoveling your walk? I hope not. I hope not. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, hire somebody to do that. Uh, what else? Maybe, uh, I don't know. What, what are, what winter, do do? winter activities in Nebraska? Uh, football? No, not anymore. Uh, Watching a basketball game. Basketball drinking game. a hot chocolate. <laughs> Listen to us while sipping a nice hot cocoa. Staring out the window. Yes. Going, mmm, Bailey's. <laughs> But for right now, we're going to go to the Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions. I would remind you for our disclaimer to go back to episode one. Uh, that's where our disgra- disclaimer lives. Uh, it doesn't live on each episode to try and keep this under point two. We were discussing before we went on Mike. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to get on literal point two. If, if both the Nebraska Court of Appeals and the Nebraska Supreme Court issue opinions I don't think we're going to get to point two. Well, I mean, we're just rounding down the more I think about it. So we can go to 17 minutes, and we're still at a point two. That's what we're calling this. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, that gives us a little bit more leeway. <laughs> we're not is... at 12 minutes. We're at 17 minutes. Okay. Oh, okay. We're value billing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think that's a good, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, or we'll just never get there. Um, and that's fine, too. It's something to strive for. But let's begin, shall we? Let's start with these are for the... Uh, Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions. Let me double check. We're starting the the third. Hey, Happy New Year! We're starting, Happy New Year. We're starting twenty twenty three. We're starting on the New Year of twenty twenty three, and uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, start with that first case, which is State v. Sydney Carson. State v. Sydney. Uh, this is a post conviction relief case that is uh, coming out of. Uh, Lancaster County. Uh, Fairly straightforward. I won't spend a ton of time on it. Again, as we did in a disclaimer uh, early on uh, in this podcast, that is not to minimize the value of any of these cases, just uh, some of them uh, we skim a little bit quicker. Uh, Here again, there were quite a few issues, but uh, none of them uh, went into a ton of depth. The one point that I will take for this, though, uh, again, that was um, at the end of the opinion is that there was um, a, an issue that was not preserved uh, for appellate review because of a lack of an offer of proof. And um, that's something as a young practitioner that scares me. Uh, I know it's something that you and I talk about often in trial practice, uh, making those offers of proof, preserving things for appeal. And I think it's always worth noting, you know, when something like that comes up and it's an issue that maybe uh, could have been valuable or something that uh, could be for appeal, um, you know, make those offers of proof. And that way you have a shot to uh, at least let an appellate court look at it. Yeah, there you go. And um, this is post-conviction week with the Nebraska Court of Appeals. I'm, I'm sensing a theme. Uh, I also have post-conviction case uh, State v. Allen uh, filed on January 3rd, 2023. Um, they denied his evidentiary hearing um, and denied his ability to uh, amend his motion for post-conviction uh, relief. And um, I guess my takeaway from this case is that the uh, rules of civil procedure 
do not apply to post-conviction proceedings. I don't, I don't do a lot of post-conviction work. Um, so that, that to me struck me as like, well, that's a little nugget. Uh, of something that uh, might be important is so the rules of civil procedure don't necessarily appro- don't apply they just don't apply so what will happen is that you'll get a lot of a pro se uh, litigants uh, filing these things for post conviction and they'll see this rules of civil procedure and they'll think hey those make sense to, <laughs> to apply those that would fit. and hey guess what they don't uh, they they have post conviction has its own little set of rules and procedures and you got to find that in the uh, in the book so. That was affirmed, um, and uh, that's a post-conviction for State v. Allen. The next case, which is, again, a post-conviction relief, is State v. Uh, Gonzalez-Garcia. This is um, Gonzalez-Garcia was sentenced to a uh, lengthy uh, prison sentence, 60 to 80 years, out of uh, Douglas County on a uh, first-degree sexual assault of a child. Um, Again, fairly straightforward, at least uh, for my opinion, and a fairly uh, short opinion. Uh, There was, however, kind of an interesting nugget at the end uh, where Gonzalez-Garcia was alleging um, juror misconduct because this was a Douglas County case, and there was was a juror who was found um, during uh, voir dire to have lived in Sarpy County, who was left hmm. on the um, jury panel, and uh, they they looked at that, and uh, Gonzalez Garcia was saying, "Hey, I am entitled to a trial by a." Uh, jury of my peers. I am from Douglas County. A Sarpy County resident is not my peer. <laughs> not my peer. And therefore, this is per se, um, this uh, uh, trial should be per se reversed. How'd that go over? Uh, no, it did, it did <laughs> not go over well. Uh, there is no uh, just simply per se harm, although it is interesting that uh, our Court of Appeals did note that that probably is constitutional error, but just because something is constitutional error does not mean it is per se error. And uh, if there is is no prejudice if there is no harm uh, we are not going to reverse a criminal conviction especially of this kind on um, something of that nature so Under, just yeah. an interesting nugget yeah interesting um i have my uh my tolerance for post-conviction relief review is is le- reaching its limit dwindling uh, <laughs> i hope we never get like 10 of these and we go through all the post-conviction cases. anyway here's another post-conviction case um state v johnson uh, this uh, individual was, um, well, I didn't even, well, yeah, he was convicted of second degree forgery, and that's where we're at. And then, oh, and the second degree forgery in the amount of $5,000 or more, and then 1500 or excuse me, 1500 but less than 5000 and um, then there was an amended information charging him with 5000 or more, which was a 2A felony. Um no post-conviction relief was granted, and the trial court was affirmed for not granting it. And they um, said, and this was my takeaway from it, uh, they didn't, pr- uh, he, he at least alleged that his uh, trial counsel did not provide him with the police reports. And he said that was uh, error, constitutional error. And the um, Court of Appeals says, well, you got to allege facts that say what was in those police reports that would have um, assisted you and and what have would have without that specificity they're not going to grant it which i find a little odd because without the police reports how are, how are you supposed to know what's in there but i guess that's what they say so um if if 
you need to say specifically say what was in the discovery in order to say I didn't get my discovery and I should have been given my discovery, which I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm misreading it. Maybe it's more nuanced than that. But to me, it just struck me as well. That's kind of weird. How do you how do you discover what hasn't yet been discovered? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you assume that it's almost assuming that they know what's in the police reports when they probably don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that interesting one. Uh, I guess for that standpoint, but uh, other than that, post-conviction and affirmed. All right, so we move on to the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court opinions, I believe, for January 6th. Yeah. Is that correct? First of the year. First of the year. First set of uh, court of or Supreme Court opinions took Christmas off, and now we have some New Year's opinions. And we start out uh, with a doozy. I like to... Um, call this case the uh, John Lenich special, uh, <laughs> a, a nice uh, uh, ode to the fine civil procedure professor, uh, I believe now retired, although he's been drug out of retirement a couple of times, uh, Wheelbarger v. Detroit Diesel, a case coming out of Buffalo County. Uh, the issue here um, was essentially uh, personal jurisdiction over uh, the uh, defendant in this case who um, was a Michigan defendant, a Michigan company that was selling software. They weren't creating the software, but they were selling software that was then being placed into uh, trucks that were being used in Nebraska. And so the issue essentially here was uh, had the defendants uh, gained personal jurisdiction in Nebraska because they were marketing uh, products in Nebraska and uh, those products were the focus of the action uh, here in um, Buffalo County. Uh, the district court uh, here in Buffalo County dismissed uh, the lack of uh, dismissed the the um, case for lack of contacts and uh, the passivity of the website, essentially saying that Michigan wasn't this Michigan company was not uh, directly targeting um, Nebraska and that there was no reasonable um, anticipation of being sued in Nebraska because of that. Uh, and here the... Because uh, of the website? Because, well, because of the website and just their contacts. So the website was general. It wasn't like it was specifically targeting Nebraska, Nebraska audience. Okay. Yeah. Um, and here the... Um, the discussion is, and I, I believe, again, this is the uh, the John Lennish and civil procedure language where the contacts were too attenuated uh, to um, have the defendant reasonably um, see that they could be hailed into court in Nebraska. And so there were no actual physical dealings in existence, um, and anything that did exist um, was uh, fairly arm's length. And so, therefore, uh, the defendant did not have personal jurisdiction here in Nebraska. Too attenuated. That That's a... Uh, too attenuated. Look at that. I mean, it's not Latin, but <laughs> that's close. a legal word. It's close. That's a, that's a beautiful oh, legal term. I, I can't sit here. I, it's too attenuated. Too attenuated. <laughs> too attenuated to something else. I don't know. Uh, anything else on that? Nothing uh, else on Wheelbarger. Wheelbarger. Okay. Uh, I had Bershon. I'm going to uh, go fairly quickly with uh, Bershon. Uh Mr. Bershon was convicted of 19 convictions in District Court of Washington County, 13 counts of first-degree sexual assault, three counts of incest, three counts of intentional abuse of a vulnerable adult. Um, they alleged three items on appeal, uh, summarized, of course, um, didn't receive adequate notice, double jeopardy, and uh, insufficient evidence uh, that the victim was mentally incapable of resisting or apprising the nature of sexual conduct. So, and that's one of the elements for the uh, abuse of a vulnerable adult and the sexual assault allegation. So, um, 
interesting to me. I have a soft spot in my heart for Double Jeopardy. I I, I don't know why. I just think it's interesting. I always want to look at uh, and analyze things for Double Jeopardy. I find the Blockburger analysis to be uh, an interesting analysis to look at the elements and see whether they overlap. And the arguments there, I, I, I've always found a little fun. But uh, in this instance, <clears throat> what we have is a failure to... Uh, allege the double jeopardy issue in the constitutional claims at the at the trial court level, and because of that, it was waived. So they didn't uh, were able weren't able to get in depth about the uh, double jeopardy allegations. And then they said that there was sufficient evidence uh, given the victim's testimony regarding uh, whether the victim understood or was uh, di- mentally incapable of resisting or appraising the nature of sexual conduct. So. That uh, was, there was sufficient evidence of that, and this uh, individual's convictions were affirmed. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, We move on to now uh, Muller v. Pete's. Pete's or Pate's? I'm going to call it Pete's. We'll call Pete's. Uh, It's EE. We'll say Pete's. Um, This is uh, a dispute arising out of if um, a Nebraska judgment that was rendered against a beneficiary of an estate uh, should be set off against the uh, share that was um, going to pass to that beneficiary as part of a Kansas uh, probate um, proceeding. Um, In this case, essentially, there was a settlement that had been reached uh, prior to uh, the decedent uh, for who the the probate action in in Kansas was about. Um, So there is a uh, judgment that's reached against a person who's going to be a beneficiary for that decedent. Um, This person dies, the probate proceeding uh, begins, and uh, they're essentially looking at whether or not um, that judgment should uh, lie against that beneficiary. And so um, here, the the action in um, Nebraska is filed in um, district court uh, asking for a uh, declaratory judgment saying whether or not uh, the judgment should stand against that beneficiary. Um, The Nebraska Supreme Court says that the uh, district court did not need to hear um, merits on this case because there was no need to uh, give a declaratory judgment here because the probate action was pending in Kansas. And so that was actually the uh, proper venue to deal with the uh, merits of this um, issue. And so even though uh, the district court did end up hearing merits arguments on this, uh, it ends up dismissing the declaratory judgment action. And so therefore the result is affirmed. Uh, But here the Nebraska Supreme Court gives us a pretty detailed discussion of when we have appropriate uh, venue how we handle declaratory judgments with foreign actions pending um, and when those are appropriate. And so there's a lot of attenuated. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of very detailed discussion on um, those issues uh, within that opinion within that opinion. And so again, that's something where you may want to look at if you have a, a foreign judgment pending or you have an action pending, um, you know, where is the appropriate venue? How do I handle um, certain things? That's an opinion that gets very in-depth in there. And if we were to do this, it would turn into 1.2 law review um, <laughs> instead of 0.2. So oh, we'll one, end it at that. I, uh, I don't get uh, – I, I don't – I enjoy this, but a 1.2 law review. review. Uh, <laughs> that would be a New Year's resolution to end all, all resolutions. Uh, yeah, I um, – yeah, well, let's just leave it at that. Uh, anything else on uh, Pete's? Nothing else on Pete's. Okay, I have, I believe it's May, M A I, uh, V uh, German. And this case 
<clears throat> basically, uh, an individual named John May and his company um, brought an action against a uh, abstract and title company for professional negligence. And the claims were alleged from a number of years prior to bringing the claim, from 1999 through 2012. And the uh, allegation, or excuse me, the defense raised, the abstract raised, and said, well, this is outside the statute of limitations. And the um, title agent, the uh, plaintiff said, well, actually, this is within the statute of limitations because um, a title agent is not a professional, and they were not, even if you do consider abstractors professionals, they were not rendering professional services um, under the statute regarding um, those limitations periods under 25-222. The district court and ultimately the Nebraska Supreme Court held that uh, German, the defendant here, was performing abstractor services, and the abstractor of title provides professional services within the meaning of that statute, and the district court was affirmed, um, and that the plaintiff's claims were time-barred. That is that case. All right, so I've got the final case, which is State v. Yzeta. Yzeta? Yzeta? Yeah. I think we'll go with... Yazetta. Yazetta. I like Yazetta. that. that is, it is a uh, speedy trial appeal out of uh, Hall County. Um, it is an issue of first impression in the state of Nebraska. And I will uh, read the issue directly from the opinion because it is kind of um, a, a fairly uh, niche issue. Um, and that is, uh, does the 180-day period for tri- uh, speedy trial cease to run after a person who is imprisoned in a facility operated by the Department of Correctional Co- of correctional services is finally discharged. That is when he or she is no longer a uh, Department of Corrections prisoner. So when does uh, that time period run? And here uh, we have a very um, intensive and convoluted set of facts and the timeline super important. Uh, the essential parts are that uh, Yazetta was charged um, with uh, two felonies and a misdemeanor in Hall County um, after that period of time, in county court, after that period of time, Yazetta began serving a uh, sentence in Douglas County for an unrelated offense. Um, on September 27th of 2021, Yazetta, while they were, uh, while Yazetta was still a prisoner um, in Douglas County, requested a speedy disposition of the untried case in Hall County, uh, so asked that that case be brought to trial. On October 13th, the county attorney in Hall County acknowledged receipt of that request um, and uh, accepted temporary custody in order to arraign uh, Yazetta and then filed um, a county court action or the appropriate county court documents on October 14th and 15th. Um, on November 3rd, Yazetta appeared remotely for a hearing and the prelim was set for December 22nd. On December 22nd, uh, so approximately two months later, uh, both felonies are bound over um, and the other two misdemeanors are dismissed. And then there is an information filed on January 5th um, alleging the same original four counts. Uh, on January 18th, uh, Yazetta is arraigned in district court. Uh, a pre-conference uh, trial or a pre-conference hearing is set then for April 4th, and trial is set for May 2nd. On April 22nd, so after that pre-trial conference, Yazetta files a motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction pursuant to the intrastate detainer status uh, statute. 
um, essentially saying that there had not been speedy disposition, uh, that the county attorney had received notice and accepted the request uh, for speedy trial on October 15th, and that more than 180 days had uh, passed since October 15th. Um, on May 5th, uh, the district court, after uh, hearing argument and taking motions, uh, overruled that motion, uh, saying that Uzetta was not entitled to relief um, and uh, because of the fact that he was not a committed offender, he had been released uh, from Douglas County in between that time, um, and that the speedy dismissal was not appropriate. And then alternatively, that uh, the statutory period had ran from October 13th, that's when it had began, uh, but that it was told by a continuance from November 3rd to December 22nd, uh, which the um, prosec- or which the defendant had made that continuance or uh, the prosecution had made that with the consent of the defense's um, attorney. And so uh, here the Supreme Court looks at uh, first and maybe most importantly, what is um, a defendant under uh, this detainer statute? And the Supreme Court found that uh, Yez- uh, Yezetta was not a um, was not a person who was covered by the detainer status because he had been released after filing this notice. So he was not detained at the time that he was asking for the relief under this um, detainer statute. And so there they say that um, a person who has been discharged from uh, the Department of Corrections uh, custody as a prisoner is no longer able to use that after the date of discharge. And the interesting piece there is, uh, even though he probably would have applied at the time that he gave notice to Hall County, because he was no longer under that detainer status uh, at the time he was asking for the relief, the uh, discharge of the uh, case due to the failure of speedy trial, because he'd been released, he was no longer covered under that uh, detainer status. Um, and so because it didn't uh, apply to him, um, that that was affirmed. The interesting piece here is, um, I, I think, um, a very unique area of the law is putting um, county attorneys on notice. If you have someone who would be covered by this detainer status in order to make sure that the clock is running. Yeah. I mean, if you have a client in the Department of Corrections and they're facing additional um, charges, I, I think you got to take a look at this case and see whether it applies and whether you need to give notice to county attorney or not. 100%. And then also the discussion of what is a prisoner, which I think is always an interesting thing, and our, our Supreme Court uh, addresses that. And I, I don't know that you see that discussion all that often on what exactly is a prisoner. Well, how do we define that? I uh, I don't know your philosophy background, but uh, Wittgenstein and <laughs> his uh, love of language and, and, and trying to parse out, you know, what do words mean? Anyway, I always find it uh, kind of fascinating when we search uh, and try and define something um, that on the surface seems so clear cut. Right? So clear. Yeah. I mean, you're a prisoner. Well, you're in prison, right? That, that seems to be the definition, but uh, you 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 know, chip the layers there a little bit and it becomes a little more nuanced. And then you get some hard cases maybe that make uh, people want to decide one way or the other. And then it turns up another way and you can uh, find the definition and create exceptions and make words mean this. uh, Ultimately words mean whatever we want them to mean. It means what we want it to mean, whatever it means. But wow, I didn't mean to take it to that philosophical level. Hey, it was a deep case. <laughs> yeah, deep cases give us a little deep bit. Deep cases of, make me say things like Philosophical, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. 
Anything else on that one? Nothing else on that one. That's a good one. Um, that's an interesting one, and I, I think that's it for this week. Is that it? That's it for this week. Oh, well. Hey. Job and I ain't that's for your country roots. And, well, and fitting for a Friday. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Isn't it, though? Out we go. Out we go. Hey, 2023. Or 2022. Goodbye. This is 2023. And this is the second week in 2023. We'll be back next week. We will. And uh, we'll have more on Point to Law Review brought to you by Anderson Klein Brewster and Brandt. Offices in Minden. Holdridge and Kearney. Hey, see you later. Hey, thanks everybody. <laughs>